0: If you would take out your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We will begin reading in verse 25. Hear now the Word of the Lord. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. For the glory of Christ and what he has done. We thank you that it is the truth of who he is and what he has done that has indeed set us free. And we thank you that he came and declared the truth of who he is. And that in the willingness to take on the shame of the cross, he went there to pay for our sins. Lord, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful for your son. We are so grateful for your saving power that is still at work among your people. We pray that you would come now this morning, that you'd be in the preaching of your word, that you'd be working in the hearts of your people this morning to conform us to the image of Christ. And we pray, Father, that you'd be working in the hearts of those who don't yet know you, and that you'd be drawing them to see the beauty of who he is and to put their faith and trust in him and him alone. We pray all of these things in Christ's name, Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. Well, I know many of you saw the sad news this week that came out of Pakistan with regard to persecution. Uh, for those of you who who didn't, I will fill you in a little bit. Um, Presbyterian pastor in Pakistan named Eliezer Sidhu had been facing repeated harassment from some Muslims in his local area. They had vandalized his church writing Muslim graffiti all over the walls, and after he had wiped them clean and erased what they wrote, they came and told him that they were going to erase him from the face of the earth. And then last Sunday evening, just a week ago, as he was returning home from a pastoral visit, two of these men stopped him on the road. One of them pulled out a gun, and he demanded that Pastor Sidu recite the Islamic Kalima, which is the Islamic profession of faith. In blasphemous form, it starts with, there is no God, but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Well, in the face of death, Pastor Sidhu opened his mouth and, and he began to recite. But he didn't recite the Islamic Kalima. Instead, he began to recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Apostles' Creed continues, but before he could finish the men shot him in the chest and fled the scene. By God's grace, Pastor Sidhu survived the attack and he is in recovery. But sadly, this was one event among many right now that our brothers and sisters are facing in Pakistan. And in reality, this is going on all the time, all over the world, just unreported. My question for you is, what would you have done In that situation, in the face of death, would your profession of faith in Christ as Lord have remained intact? For you, is the truth worth dying for? I think we would all like to believe that to be the case, that even in death we would prove ourselves to be truly His disciples The reality is the majority of us will never face such a situation, especially those of you who are older. Now, those of you who are younger in this room, there is no telling what you will face in your lifetime. But regardless, whether you face such a situation or not, I don't think you have to be in a situation like that to know the genuineness of your faith, to know that you are truly his disciples. As we will see in this passage today, Jesus makes it clear that there is a way to know whether you are truly His disciples. And in the face of some, some semblance of belief that's rising up in the Jews, Jesus makes a clear declaration here of the nature of true belief or true discipleship. And as we walk through this passage today, that's what we're going to be exploring. And we're going to see Jesus once again reassert the object of true belief, what must be believed in, and then he's going to challenge the belief that does arise here among the Jews by giving the evidence of true belief. So the object of true belief and the evidence of true belief. And my hope is that we will get a picture of what a true disciple is and how we can know whether or not we are in that number. So let's look at this. Let's begin to walk through this passage. And let's start by looking at the object of true belief, beginning in verse 25. Read with me. So they said to him, who are you? Now, before we go any further, we need to remember why they are asking this question. If you remember from last week, Jesus has just issued a dire warning to them. And in such, he has declared his own deity and the fact that salvation from the guilt of one's sins is contingent upon him. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Last week we l- we looked at the fact that what was behind that statement was an allusion to Exodus 3 where God himself declares himself to be the great I am. And here Jesus is taking that same language and applying it to himself. Now, at at this point, I don't think the Jews are completely grasping his use of that language. Uh, they will by the end of this chapter to be sure we will see that, but they haven't yet. But there's one thing in that statement that is absolutely impossible to miss, and that is the fact that Jesus had made one's belief in Him the determining factor of whether or not one would die in their sins. They have may, may have missed the, the part about the I am, but they could not have missed the explicit claim that everything was contingent upon Him. And in r- response to this lofty claim the Jews ask the right question. Well, then who are you? That, That is the right question, to be sure. But it is an absolute tragedy that it had to be asked at this point in the game. Because Jesus has over and over both declared and demonstrated who He is to these Jews. He's not new on the scene here. This is towards the end of his life in ministry. After almost three years of this, they have seen his works, they have heard his teachings, and his ministry has made no small splash. I mean, just remember at the beginning of chapter 7, at the opening of the, the Feast of Tabernacles, before Jesus even came to the feast, all of Jerusalem was talking about him. And since then, he has made many more statements about who he is, not to mention the one that he just made. But they still have to ask, who are you? Which is why Jesus responds the way he does. Look at the rest of verse 25. Jesus says to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. At this point, he seems almost exasperated. He's already told them in so many ways and so many times, and yet they they still do not understand. To get a sense for this, to to feel the weight of this, let's remind ourselves of of just what is recorded in this gospel, in his public dealings with the Jews. Starting in in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he declared himself to be explicitly... The son of the father, the son of God, the son of man, the one who carries out the works of God, the giver of life, the judge of all mankind, the one who will resurrect the dead, the one of whom John bore witness, the fulfillment of the scriptures, the one of whom Moses wrote. In chapter 6, he declared himself to be the one of whom God the father has set his seal, the one that must be believed upon in order to obey God, the one who grants life to the world, The bread of life, the one come down from heaven, the flesh and blood that must be consumed for eternal life, the Son of Man who will ascend back to glory. In chapter 7, he said that he is the one who declares the teachings of God, the one who operates with the authority of God, the one returning to the Father, the one who bestows the waters of salvation, and he is the giver of the Spirit of God. And then so far in chapter 8, he's declared himself to be the light of the world, the issuer of the Father's judgment, the one who is from above, the one who is not of this world, and last of all, the great I Am. All of which has been corroborated by the countless and undeniable signs that Jesus had performed both in Galilee and in Jerusalem. And keep in mind, This is just taking into account the episodes that John has recorded for us. Which was just a small sampling of all that Christ ever said and did. In fact, John will even say at the end of the book that if everything that Christ did was recorded, the world could not contain the books that would be written. The fact is, there was was no shortage of clarity and there was no shortage of proof. Jesus has been making it clear to them from the beginning of his ministry who he is. So the question here of who are you is just absolutely tragic. This isn't a request for just clarity. It is a display of their willful deafness and blindness due to the hardness of their hearts. It is a response of unbelief. And for that reason, he doesn't He doesn't pursue a further defense of his person. He simply points them to what he's already said. What I've told you from the beginning. And then he asserts in the face of their unbelief that he is going to judge them. Look at verse 26. It says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. See, the reality is every single person will either have Christ as their Lord and Savior or as their judge and executioner. There's nothing in between. And he's making that clear here. And both of those roles constitute the mission given to him by the Father. The Father sent Him to both save and judge, and He declares only that which He has heard from Him. As Jesus said back in chapter 7, in the authority of the Father, He testifies to the world that its deeds are evil. Christ's declarations about who He is and who the world is are the words of the Father. They are God's declaration about His Son, and God's declaration about the world, that it is evil. But once again, they did not understand, and John wants us to continue to see the blindness and deafness on display. Look at, look at John's note here in verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Again, we are, we are just talking about shocking levels of unbelief here. It's not that they did not understand because Christ had not told them or He had not been clear, as we just heard from all of those previous encounters. He had over and over told them, but they did not understand because of the hardness of their hearts. And for that reason, Jesus now tells them what it is that will make everything clear for them. There is coming an event and a coming time that will lead to absolute clarity and proof of who He is. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. All of this is going to be cleared up for every single one of them. They will understand everything. And Jesus, again, for the second time in this gospel, uses this language of the Son of Man being lifted up. This is the the same language that he used with with Nicodemus back in chapter 3, verse 14, when he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must, He must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And again, just just like last time, as we talked about, this language carries with it a double meaning. He is meaning both being lifted up on the cross, but also exalted in glory. Lifted up in glory. That's why He uses the exalted title of the Son of Man alluding to the the glory that he was to receive as prophesied by the book of Daniel. But in in God's ironic plan, the shame of the cross was the means of his glorification. This time, notice a little bit of difference in his language, though. Notice that he brings a little more clarity to the statement by not just speaking of it in the passive, the Son of Man must be lifted up, But rather, he speaks of it about them as the instruments that will do the lifting up. They are the instruments by which his glory will come through the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man. There's so much irony here in what is going on. The Jews will use the cross in the hopes to bring Christ to an end. But God will use the cross to exalt the Son to His place of ultimate authority as He is the judge of all mankind. What that means is, in other words, through the cross, Jesus' own executioners literally seat their own judge on His judgment seat. They usher Him to His throne of judgment in power. And it is through the lifting Him up on the cross, leading to His resurrection, that His identity is disclosed and revealed to the world. The cross is the chief revealer of who Christ truly is. It's the cross that reveals Him as the crucified Messiah. It's the cross that reveals Him as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It's the cross that reveals Him as the Savior of the world. It's the cross that reveals Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the cross that reveals Him as the victorious Lamb standing in heaven as though He has been slain. It's the cross that revealed Him as the one who ransomed a people from every tribe and nation and tongue with His own blood. And it's the cross that reveals Him as the exalted Son of Man from Daniel 7 who has an everlasting dominion in a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. It is the cross that brings all about. And beyond all of that, it is through the cross that God is revealed, that he is made known. When Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son, son of Man, then you will know that I am, this is another place where Jesus says, Ego a me. Simply, I am the divine name, the great I am Yahweh. And it is through the cross and resurrection that the final proof of His divinity is put forth and given to the world. Showing that He is both God and Savior. This has direct ties to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 is building off the the great I Am name from Exodus chapter 3. Jesus is playing off both here. That you may know and believe, Isaiah 43... That you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, and nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. He's talking about the Son. He's talking about Yahweh. And the cross revealed that. The cross revealed that Christ is Lord, Yahweh. And besides Him there is no Savior savior ultimately he was showing that he is one with the father that he operates with the authority of heaven and that as he says here showing that he is the perfect obedient son going even to the cross who always pleases the father who is with him at all times in a, in a very real sense in god's plan this this was the means of revealing his triune nature to the world that Yahweh, the one and eternal true God, is triune in nature. That God is one in essence and yet three in person. Father, Son, and Spirit. Co-equal and co-eternal. That reality was revealed to the world through the redemptive work of the Son. We know that because of Christ Christ. And what the Divine Son is standing here saying to these Jews, it is that through their own actions they will come to know the truth that they ple- presently deny. That He is God the Son. But just for clarity, He is not saying this in a positive light. He is not saying that once He goes to the cross that they will come to believe and be saved. And Some will to be sure, but this is more speaking about the eschatological reality that there is coming a day when all will look upon the crucified Messiah, the God-man Jesus, and will be forced to bend their knee in acknowledgement to Him. That comes about through the cross. In fact, Paul spelled this out very clearly in the Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. He said though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, The idea of confessing Jesus as Lord there, which everyone will do, is an acknowledgement both of His supreme authority and of His identity as God. Lord being the Greek translation of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Because of the cross, there's coming a day when everyone will acknowledge who He is, one way or another. Now, for some Jews... They will recognize this on, that, this on this side of glory. God has promised that among the Jewish people, he will always have a remnant. And Paul uses himself as an a example of this, as evidence of this in Romans chapter 11. In fact, at, at, at the birth of the church, Peter concludes his first sermon in Acts 2 by saying to the Jews... Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, the one you lifted up. And they were cut to the heart. What what do we do? 3,000 of them believed and were baptized that day and added to the church. Praise God. But while that is a lot to believe in one day, The sad fact is, 3,000 was a drop in the bucket to all the Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time. Most of them would remain hardened unbelievers to the truth that was right in front of them. Even when the undeniable evidence of the resurrection was in their face, the empty tomb, the tomb was empty. They would rather simply propagate known lies in order to avoid the truth. There is coming a day, as the scripture says, when they will look upon the one who they have pierced, the Lord of glory whom they have crucified, and they will bend their knee to him as God. It will all, as Jesus says here, it will all be cleared up. You will know that I am He. But at that time it'll be too late. They will be bending their knee to their judge, not to their Savior. And that is true for everyone. Everyone will bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging the truth of who He is. It is just a matter of whether you do it now on your own volition or you do it then in judgment. In order to be a true disciple, in order to understand who He is and understand whether we stand in Him, we must bend our knees now. We must acknowledge what He has done Now, we must take him at his word and put our faith in him as the one true and only God and Savior. Now, there is no other way. Now, the question here is, is did any of these Jews understand this? Did they get it? Did they believe him? Well, look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, at first blush, that seems like a pretty surprising comment from the Apostle John. Especially coming off how dense the Jews were proving themselves to be. As John showed they continued not only to miss who Jesus was, but also who the Father is. And everything Jesus had said to them had just completely gone over their heads. Everything that he has done did not prove to them. But then all of a sudden, it says, many believed. Perhaps this is just a wonderful turn of events. Jesus had just declared, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And John immediately says there was many who believed. Well, as wonderful as that would be, the sad fact is that is not at all what's going on here. And this is not a surprising event when you understand the pattern of this book. See, we've seen this before. We've, we've already run into this. This is yet again another case of superficial faith. That is not truly trusting in Christ. A theme that John continues to bring out as we have been working through this gospel. Well, how do we know that's true here? Because of what's coming in the context. These Jews who here who, who believe are the same Jews who are about to boast in their lineage, deny their slavery to sin, they will eventually accuse Christ of having a demon, and they are likely part of those who pick up stones at the end of this to try to stone Christ, when they finally realize who he's claiming to be. See, the audience never changes, nor does John attempt to delineate between different groups. On the contrary, the very next verse makes it clear that Jesus is addressing those who believe. And it is they who retort to him in verse 33. Sadly, this is just like what we saw in chapter 2 and just like what we saw in chapter 6. This is a superficial belief. In chapter 2, verse 23, it said, Now when the, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Many believed, but Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. Likewise, in chapter 6, it began with the crowd seeking to take him by force and to make him king. Because they believed him to be the prophet who was to come into the world. They had some true beliefs about him. But it was incomplete, and it fell short of reality. And that chapter ends with his so-called disciples turning back and no longer walking with him. They forsook him when they understood the fullness of his claims. It was a fickle faith, not based on the fullness of who he is or why he came. Well, here we have a similar type belief. They believed some true things about Christ, no doubt, probably that he was indeed the prophet that Moses spoke about. And likely, more than anything, they were believing in him within the messianic paradigm that ruled the day, that he was there to be a political leader for the Jews, a king to bring about physical deliverance from Rome. And that is perhaps what they thought he meant by saying, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. They may see that as a reference to exalting Him as a political Messiah, as as King of the Jews, as they were attempting to do back in chapter 6. But whatever the case may be, they clearly did not see Him as God, nor did they believe in Him salvifically. They, they, They did not even see their need of a Savior from sin, as they will show in their coming words. And Jesus... Because he knows all men and knows what is in man, he immediately and directly addresses what true belief will look like, what true discipleship will look like. And John the writer was simply bringing out their superficial faith to give context to what Jesus says here. As he now brings the ultimate evidence of true belief. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus here gives the ultimate proof by which one can know whether or not they are a true disciple or a superficial disciple. And this is not just the ultimate proof here for these Jews, but for everyone. And it is whether or not you abide in his word. And Jesus says, if you do that, you are truly my disciples. Or it could be translated, really my disciples, or actually my disciples. By implication, Jesus knew that they weren't. And his desire was not to just pander to false converts or to amass as many followers as possible, no matter the nature of their allegiance. No, he was after genuine faith and genuine discipleship. And this is the evidence that will reveal the difference between fickle, superficial faith and genuine faith, between false disciples and true disciples, abiding in his word. The obvious question that needs to be explored is, what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in His Word? How are we to understand that? Well, the word abide here simply means to remain, or to continue in, or to stay. It communicates a permanent residing in a location. And, And the use of this term is a central theme in this gospel. John uses it more than any other writer. And he uses it to describe both the relationships of of the persons within the Trinity, within the Godhead, and the relationships of the believer to the triune God. If you remember in chapter 1, it was said that the Holy Spirit came down and remained upon, abided upon Jesus, the Son, the same word. Chapter 14, Jesus says that the Father abides, resides, remains in Him. But likewise, he describes the believer's relationship to him as one of abiding. In chapter 15, he will explore this extensively, but he starts that discussion by declaring that the true believer abides in him and he in the true believer. There is a mysterious and glorious union that the believer shares with Christ, with God. There's a permanent residing in Him and He in us that lasts in eternity. These are glorious things to meditate upon. But here, He uses the, the same term to show that the evidence of the true believer is that he or she abides, remains, resides, or continues in His Word. What does He mean by Word? Well, this is a word that many of you are familiar with. It's the Greek word logos. And very generally, it means message or, or teaching. And Jesus is using it here in the singular, speaking not about some of his teachings, but rather about the totality of his message. Predominantly, the totality of who he's revealed himself to be and what he has required of man. Namely, belief and trust in him and all that he is. That is what he's been preaching over and over to these Jews. And the reality is, Jesus himself is the message of God. He is the Logos. That's why John starts this gospel the way he does. Jesus is the divine Logos. He is the Word who is both with God and who is God. He is the Word made flesh. To abide in His Word is to abide in Him. It is to abide in who He is and what He has done. It is to trust in all that He has revealed Himself to be and to continue in it. It means you have accepted Him on His terms and not your own. See, the truth is you can't make up a Jesus of your own. You, you, You can't accept a partial Jesus. You can't take the things you like and disregard the things you don't. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Nor can you acknowledge His Lordship without acknowledging your need of a Savior. You can't have a Sunday Jesus. You can't have a Jesus for part of your life and not the other parts. You can't have a Jesus to serve your own desires without submitting to His demands. If you do any of that, as the Jews were attempting to do here, you are not abiding in His Word. and You are not a true disciple. You are to abide in the totality of who He is. You must accept and abide Christ as He has revealed Himself to be for all of life. It is either all or nothing. There is no in-between. Either Christ is everything for you or He is nothing to you. And the true disciple sees that. Their lives are utterly controlled by and given to the truth of who Christ is and what He has done. That God came in the flesh and died for sinners is everything. It dictates everything, all of life. The true disciple abides in all of Christ for all of life and he will never depart from it. Nothing will drive him away from that truth. He remains, he abides, no matter what he or she faces. True disciples will always have the posture that Peter took back in chapter 6 when he said, After everyone had forsook Christ except the twelve, he said, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The question is, why is that? Is it just by the sheer staying power of one's will that they abide? Is Jesus saying that endurance in the faith somehow earns or keeps your status as a true disciple? Can we not have assurance until we have endured to the end? Not at all. It's not at all what he's saying. The point is not that those who will endure will merit this status as a true disciple. The point is that those who have been made true disciples will endure as a fruit of who they are. That's a big difference. And once again, it all goes back to the new birth. It goes back to regeneration. It goes back to what Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Those who have received the truth of who Christ is have been made spiritually alive. They are new creatures in Christ. In fact, listen to the way the Apostle Peter phrases this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, But of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. It's the Gospel. Those who abide in the Word are those who have been born again, abiding in the truth of who Christ is. They are. They are abiding in Him, and the living Word is abiding in them, which is the good news about Jesus Christ. Abiding is not a test of the will. It is the evidence of the work of God upon the heart. Which is exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 32. That's why He phrases it the way He does. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These Jews didn't know the truth at the time. And again, by truth, he's talking about himself, the truth of who he is and what he has done. As he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And those who have encountered and received the truth have been set free by the truth. And he's talking about ultimate freedom here. Yes, that includes... Freedom from the slavery of sin, which, which Jesus will narrow down to in, in response to the Jews, as we'll discuss next week. But here he's speaking more broadly. He's speaking of freedom from sin, yes, but also freedom from judgment, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the darkness, freedom from the bondage of the flesh, freedom from the tyranny of Satan, freedom from the corruption of this world, freedom from the lies of the devil, and chiefly freedom from the ignorance of God. You shall know the truth. You shall know Him. And the truth will set you free. But it is not just a freedom from things. As glorious as all of that is, as Americans we often think of freedom as just ultimate autonomy. Freedom from that which restricts us. Being able to do whatever you want to do. Freedom for the sake of autonomy. That's not it at all. Freedom is not just a from thing, it is also a freedom to thing. And ultimate freedom is being able to live in accordance with the purpose for which you were created. Which, if you remember from last week, is what? Does anybody remember? Why were we created in the first place? To know and to love God. God. That's why it is the first and great commandment. That's why we were created. Man was created to know and to love his Creator. But you can only do that through Jesus Christ. The truth. The truth of who He is and what He has done. The truth of the gospel sets the sinner free to live according to the design for which He was created. It is through the truth that we are born again. And those who have been born again, born of God, will never depart from the truth of Christ. As God said and promised in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commands. God is at work in the heart of His people. And we can trust in His faithfulness to preserve His people. I don't, I don't believe for a second Pastor Sidhu's action just sprung from mere courage and strength of the flesh, but it sprang from the work of God in his heart that gave him the freedom and a supernatural courage in that moment of life and death to once again declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to abide in His Word even in the face of death. And Lord willing, you will never face what Pastor C.U. faced. Some of you might. Some of you might. But the majority of us will not. But That does not mean that your faith will not be tested. It will be. Your faith will be tested and is tested all the time. As you face trials and hardships and sufferings and loss in this life. Some of you will get cancer. Some of you will lose loved ones. Some of you will struggle to make ends meet. Some of you will live in chronic and relentless physical pain. Some of you will live with broken and devastating relationships. Some of you will face ostracism and ridicule. Some of you will just be disappointed with the way life has gone. And a thousand other trials that we face in this sin cursed world. But when you walk through all of that, any of that, still proclaiming the goodness of God and that Christ is Lord, that He is Savior, and that there's nothing that matters more than Him, that, that, that is the evidence that you are His and that He is yours. And though we would all rather not face those things, we will. By God's ordaining in our lives, his good purposes in our lives. He's got reasons behind it all. We may not always see it, but his purposes are there. First Peter 1 6. But in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Endurance through trial brings glory to your Savior and it proves the genuineness of your faith. Not to to God. God knows whether or not your faith is genuine. But to you, Faith is binary. You either have it, you either have genuine faith, or you don't. And as you walk through trials where your faith is tested, and you come out proclaiming Jesus is Lord, your faith is verified to yourself once again. Strengthening your faith as you go, preparing you for even more that you will face down the road. And all of it, more than anything, is leading to His glory. This is why you can rejoice in various trials because you're being sanctified and God is being glorified as you continue to keep your faith in Jesus Christ. Church, keep your eyes on Him. Abide in His Word. Abide in the truth of who He is. Abide in what He has revealed Himself to be and what He has done for guilty sinners like you and me. You do that and you will be conformed to His image. And you will bring glory to your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can know there is nothing in this life that is without purpose. If we are yours, all things are working together. Together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purposes, and we can rest in that. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the faith of every believer under the sound of my voice. Lord, that as we pass through these trials of various kinds, that we would keep our eyes upon Christ, confessing that he is Lord and that nothing matters more than him. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on what you have done and what you have Done through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in our faith and our conformity to him and help us to be proclaimers of this good news that has saved us from an eternity apart from you. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. Church, let's stand together as we...